Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have the amazing Aga Bayer on the show. Aga is an expert in corporate culture and currently the founder and CEO of Culture Brain, which is a one-of-a-kind virtual community of leaders looking for new ways of cultivating remarkable cultures at a scale in this brand new way and world of work. On top of this, Aga runs her own consultancy firm. She's an author, a keynote speaker, and a fellow podcast host where she runs the world-renowned podcast, The Culture Lab where every interview is of the highest level and she's interviewed some world-leading thought leaders such as Simon Sinek, Francis Frey and Seth Godin. Agra is one of the foremost experts in corporate culture and over the past 20 years, she's been helping companies pay attention to their culture in a way that produces desirable results. From VC courting startups to Fortune 500s, she's worked on cultivating remarkable cultures that that scale and help people through the best work of their careers at consultancy firms such as Hay Group, Corn Ferry, and PwC. And later, she founded her own consulting firm, Aga Bayer and Associates. On today's show, Aga shared her journey from founding and leading an ice cream company to consulting to now becoming the CEO of Culture Brains and the host of the very, very well-known podcast, The Culture Lab. We deep-dived into a range of topics such as her podcasting journey, our love and affection for learning and books with Aga dropping the names of some of her favorite books throughout and how she reads approximately 50 books per year. We also discussed Aga's thoughts on the areas which leaders and organizations should concentrate on first when looking to embark on large-scale change. We then talked about the three pillars into a thriving culture, which is based on all of Aga's research and she's landed on these pillars being fun, meaning, and belonging. This means that if you get these right, then you're going to go a long way to see the long-lasting improvements in your corporate culture. We also touched on how to deal with that brilliant jerk that you see in a lot of teams, and we deep-dived into some of the statistics on the returns on investment if you decide to invest in your organization's culture and how then actually to manage the culture transformation that you're about to embark on. We talked about so much more, and it was an absolute pleasure talking with Aga, and I know you're absolutely going to love this chat. If you'd like to check out her profile, you can find it at Aga Bayer on LinkedIn. That's A-G-A-B-A-J-E-R on LinkedIn. And definitely check out her podcast, Culture Labs, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Feel free to connect with me too, where you can find me at Daniel Franco on LinkedIn. If you'd like to learn more about some of the other amazing people and leaders that we've had on the Creating Synergy podcast, then be sure to jump on our website at synergyiq.com.au. Or check us out at the Creating Synergy podcast on all the podcast outlets. Cheers. So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco. And today, uh, from all the way from Greece in in Europe, we have Aga Bayer on the show. Welcome to the show, Aga. Hey, Daniel. So good to be here with you today. 
Thank you so much. I uh, I must admit and I must confess, I was a little bit nervous when I first asked you to come on the podcast. <laughs> I'm a big fan. For those in Australia who are listening in, they and they may not know, Aga is, uh, has her own podcast that is very, very successful. She's had um, people like Simon Sinek, Francis Frey, Seth Godin and Katarina Berg, who is like the head of people in, of culture of, of Spotify on the show. So you've had some, not to mention so many more, 70 odd others. Um, you're doing amazing work and your podcast, Culture Labs, is, is, is a brilliant uh, podcast. So kudos to you. Thank you. It's, you know, so nice to hear that from a fellow podcaster and I love your show. So <laughs> it's a, obviously a huge compliment. And yeah, it's true. I've been kind of lucky to have really amazing guests on the podcast. And frankly, you know, when I look at um, the list of our previous guests, I can't believe it myself. So here you go. <laughs> mm. Well, you must be very proud. How did, how did like, we'll start off with the podcast. How did it all come about? How did you, I mean, you are a specialist in strategy and culture or cultural strategy. So obviously Culture Lab's uh, um, seems like the the right option to talk about culture because you are a specialist. But but how did the podcast come about, and how did it grow to the point where you're getting these world renowned people? I, I mean, I could use some tips. I think. <laughs> well, I have. I, I think I might have one good tip for you, so we can we can go there. Oh, but great. okay, so let me let me start with how how you know where is the beginning, how it all started. Um, so, you know, I, I had a large chunk of my career was with large consultancies. And then eventually I decided to strike out on my own. And I, I started a boutique culture consultancy. And a part of creating the podcast was really thinking what would be the best marketing channels to get our message out there in a way that um, is in the spirit of serving and offering, offering something of value rather than just yelling at people, you know, look at us, we're here and we do amazing work. Um, and to be honest, for me, it was quite challenging because I'm an introvert by nature. I feel most comfortable in one-to-one -one conversations. I hate talking about myself. Um, and so I decided to zoom out a little bit and think about what are the situations that I feel most comfortable in and what are the things that really energize me. And I realized that since I was a kid, I really loved deep conversations, preferably with one person, just like sitting with a friend, you know, and, and really talking about life and stuff like that. And so I thought, here you go. This is what I... I've always liked doing, and there are so many interesting people in this space that I would love to speak to. So this is how I came up with this idea. And I think, you know, an additional factor was that I love podcasts and listening to podcasts myself. So it really seemed like a no-brainer from the point of view of this is probably the right thing to do. Um, but of course, as you know yourself, uh, from this decision point to actually having a show that works, this it's a long journey. So I'm not going to go into details, but definitely, you know, it takes some time and it takes some thinking around how you want to do it. Um, what's your, um, what's your ideal listener and how you can serve them best and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's so interesting because I think we're about 70 episodes in and only asking those questions now. <laughs> I was, uh, I was uh, very much of the, of the approach 
like you, I just like talking to people. I like asking questions. I'm a pretty curious type of person. Um, I, I seek mentors and coaches on a daily basis. I'm always looking to pick the brains of someone who's been more successful or, or done more in their, from, from a business point of view uh, and a life point of view almost on a daily basis. So what a better way than to start a podcast and ask questions and learn yeah. and learn more. So. Yeah, exactly. And and as you know, you know, it it turns out to so I you know, I've been very honest around saying this, you know, probably the main reason was really how can we start speaking to an audience that we are interested in serving. Um but the outcome of that has been an incredible journey for me, um, an incredible learning journey. So I'm definitely way richer. And hopefully wiser, you know, after having spoken to more than 100 guests now, all of them really incredible people. So as you know yourself, it's, it's an incredibly enriching process. Absolutely. I'm, I'm interested in your approach to each podcast and we won't, we won't dive on. I, I will, I'll stick on the podcast for a little bit because I just want to learn from you. So um, <laughs> cool. your, approach to each, your approach to each podcast are you meticulous in your in your research? I, I get so caught up with um, what questions I'm going to ask, how I'm going to go about the conversation, what is the order of the conversation might go to, and then um, I, I you know I might write down fifteen to twenty odd mm-hmm. questions that I have, and then every single time I ask maybe three or four of them. Same, because <laughs> the conversation same. Yeah. <laughs> totally same oh it's yeah okay good so i'm not i'm not the only one going crazy i don't think you are no (laughs) unless it's only the two of us um but but i do exactly the same thing i think i'm maybe maybe i'm slightly more relaxed on the research right now but at the beginning you know if i would interview an author i would literally read all his or hers books and and watch all the interviews and listen to all the podcasts. Mm. So it would take forever. Um, now I also have a mm. team. So I have a person who um, is doing research. Now we say, you know, spend half an hour doing uh, research on this person so that we can find some um, information about their personal life and something interesting and something mm. that will surprise them when, when I mention that um, because they wouldn't even know that that information was available or that I would know that and we can make it a little bit more personal. But back to your point, yes, I do write out questions and then I don't I don't use them very often. Um, what I do like doing, and I think, you know, if I were to strip it down to the bare basics, we do a pre-interview conversation and these are extremely useful mm-hmm. because what I ask our guests is, what is it that you are really passionate about? And what are the key messages that you would like to see that out in the world so that I can help you and guide you in the conversation to get these messages out there? And we also try to construct like an arc to the conversation because I think that it's important to take a listener on a journey where, you know, there is a beginning, they get to know the person and they get to like them at the very beginning of an interview because I do know that people will drop off um, after a few minutes if there is no connection with, with our guest. Um, and then it's really about making sure that we build up to something, some sort of climax, and then um, have a little 
portion of drawing conclusions, wrapping everything up. So that has worked really well for us. And also, you know, from the point of view of connecting with the other person, I think it's much easier to have a conversation when you're actually recording, when you have already met them and you kind of created that relationship. Um, it, It sounds more natural. And one thing also that that I want to share is the best interviews that I've ever had were the interviews where the guest had no idea what specific questions I was going to ask. And we really Mm. took it in a very relaxed way. So, you know, it was just a chat, like having coffee and chatting about interesting stuff and a lot of humor and a lot of laughter. So these are our blockbusters. When people laugh and when it's light, when there's levity, these are the episodes that people love most. Absolutely. Yeah. I, if there's one thing I, I definitely not good at, it's being serious. So uh, we'll, hopefully yeah. we'll have a few laughs uh, throughout the show. How nervous were you when you were interviewing the Simon Sinek's and the mm-hmm. Francis Frey's and the yeah. Seth Godin's? I mean, these people, look. I, I don't know if you can see right behind my ear there, there's Unleashed, which is Francis, Francis Frey's book. Um, Amazing it's, book. It, you know, and then, and then Start With Why is behind. I got a lot of Seth Godin's books. Mm-hmm. I'm a big reader, as you can see. Mm-hmm. How, I, I get nervous before every episode, but yet some of these world-renowned people. How, how did you, how did you manage uh, your nerves in that situation? You know, so this is a very interesting thing because, on a scale from one to ten, uh, if I were to say, you know, I was on this scale where one is not nervous at all, and ten is like I'm falling apart and I just can't <laughs> articulate a sentence. Um, It's interesting because when I finally got to interview these people, I guess I was probably a five, maybe even a four. And when I was interviewing my very first guest, um, who perhaps wasn't that famous, I think I was a nine or maybe even a 10. So I I was literally like sweating and shaking and, you know, (laughs) it was terrible. And actually you can listen to it because I do have the first episode still there in the archive and you can hear it. Like you can hear it. I'm a nervous wreck and the interview is pretty terrible. So I think the lesson here is that, you know, the good news is we can learn um, anything. And one of the things that we can learn is also to trust ourselves and the process and trust the guests as well. So I have plenty of trust, um, especially when it comes to people like Seth Godin or Simon Sinek, you know, that of course they will be amazing. And basically my job is not to get in their way and let them be their amazing self. That's, That's the best thing I can do. And so that puts very little pressure on me. So I think the nerves kind of calm down. You always feel butterflies in the stomach, obviously. Um, but I think the more capable and famous the guest is, the more I can rely on them to really drive the show. And so I feel like I can relax. Yeah. I, it's funny because I go back some uh, and listen. And you see the numbers of your podcast, even back to number one, you see them still go up. Mm-hmm. You go, oh, please don't judge I know, me. Oh, I know. <laughs> this is exactly how I feel. Like, oh, my gosh, someone has just listened to the first no. episode. This is terrible. <laughs> don't listen to that yeah. one. Listen to episode number 100. Yeah, yeah. that's much better. Totally. Uh, very good. Uh, one thing that is, and you mentioned it earlier, one thing that is such a benefit from coming out of podcasting and anyone that wants to get into into podcasting, I believe one of the biggest 
benefits for me has been the is the element of research. And like you said, if you've had an author on the show, you go and read all their books and you go and download all their content. So the learning is just huge, yeah. right? Like there's so much learning to be had. And um and and so naturally that it's almost forced learning. And mm-hmm. and it's uh, <laughs> and it but for me I love it. But it, it it's it that's probably the best thing that's happened to me out of the podcast is that I feel like my knowledge, my knowledge on so many different topics has just grown. You know, I I'm absolutely enjoy the learning side of things. But the forced learning has been, I think, the most main, well, the number one main benefit purely because I'm learning so many different things about so many different topics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just, it's amazing at how much, and how much I didn't know, I believe, <laughs> before I had some of these amazing guests on right. the show. Yeah, totally. You, know, you talk about diversity, you talk about inclusion, you talk about mm-hmm. environmental factors, you talk about like all these mm-hmm. different social matters and, and constructs that I'm now learning is just added to my repertoire. And I believe I've become a better conversationalist because of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes. It's, it, it's the same with me. So I my friends ask me, how do you have time to read so much? Because I think I read at least 50 books per year, maybe even more, predominantly because of the podcast. And the answer is I just have to, you know, I have no choice. So like I have to interview this person. Yeah. So I really need to, to read the book. And as you say, you know, it, um, it really helps to learn new stuff. It really helps to open new horizons. So I would definitely recommend that people, you know, if if they feel drawn to this. Um, I know that now everyone says everyone has a podcast and maybe there are too many podcasts, but but it has been an incredibly enriching experience for me as well. Well, one of the uh one of the main podcasters in the world, Tim Ferriss, mm-hmm. I'm sure you would have heard him. He says he still believes that it's early on in the wow. career of podcasts. He thinks uh, he, he thinks it's only going to go yeah. further uh, and boom even more. So interesting, mm-hmm. interesting standpoint. Um, I want to. I'd love to just go back and just talk about your career. You mentioned that you've um, used to work for a lot of consulting companies and, and then decided to jump out into the world and start your own business. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and and how you became to be a culture expert and a world renowned podcast host? Yeah, well, I think probably I would rewind to my early 20s just to give a little bit of context. So when I was um, when I was just about to graduate, I had this friend, Wukash, and he, he had entrepreneurial um, mind and spirit since he was a kid. So like he would literally take his mom's jewelry that she wouldn't be wearing and sell it to girls at school and then use this money to buy something else. And he would be doing it uh, all the time. And I was this, you know, this person who would read books and would dream of writing a book herself one day. So we're completely different. But at the same time, I think what brought us together was the spirit of adventure. And so and and he was a couple of years younger than me. And so I remember one day he was really trying, he was insisting that we should go into business together. And I'm like, I, I really don't see that. Like, I'm not a business person. <laughs> I want to focus on writing, journalism, perhaps, and stuff like that. And he would insist, insist, insist. And I remember, you know, we were just 
basically, it was a joke. I said, hey, listen, if you can come up with a business that will make me happy and other people happy, then maybe we can have this conversation again. And he's like, what would make you happy? And I said, as much ice cream as I can eat. <laughs> so it was just a dumb <laughs> answer, you know, to a, to, to a dumb question. And so fast forward a few years, what he does is he creates this ice cream manufacturing factory with um, another partner. <laughs> um, and he says, here you go, you know, we have this business and now you have to join us because we, we want to start exporting and, you know, you know, languages. So we need a person who can help us with this. So I eventually joined as one of the co-founders of, of this company and fast forward a few years, it became one of the biggest ice cream manufacturers in the central uh, Eastern Europe. So it was a huge success. It grew really fast. Well and we were all really young, really inexperienced. Now, mind you, this is 1990 uh, in the post-communist Poland. So it's like everything is like the Wild West, basically. We have no idea <laughs> how, to, how to run a business. We have no idea how to manage people. We just improvise all the time. And so yeah. after a couple of years... I still feel like that today. Yeah, it's true, right? <laughs> because things are changing all the time and we're always kind of navigating this un uncharted territory in one way or another. Um, but, you know, the first few years for me being in that company... Uh, it was just a blur. I just didn't know what happened. But then when I finally found an opportunity to kind of step back and reflect, I realized a few things. One was I wasn't happy. So, you know, the promise, the initial promise of we're going to go into business together and, you know, uh, if it can make me and other people happy, um, that didn't happen. What was worse, I felt like we were not making others happy either because, you know, just looking around and at our employees and the people who are working in the factory, but also people who were um, the executives in the company, everyone was incredibly stressed, burnt out, um, with no sense of meaning or direction. Um, and it really felt like, why are we really doing this? Is it just for the money or is there any other reason? Mm. And so I thought, okay, this is, you know, I'm either going to leave or we're going to change things. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not a quitter and it can be a bad quality. So <laughs> I decided to push through and make things better in, in that company. Um, and so I started reading, reading about, you know, what, what motivates people, what uh, creates a good working environment for people. Um, how can we create a workplace where people will not go, oh, my God, I have to go to work again, but they will feel like, hmm, let's see what happens at work today, you know, and I guess it might be fun. Um, and so it started really this way, just trying to fix our business. And the more I read, the more I realized how much I didn't know. And it was clear to me pretty fast that, that I need to spend way more time and go deeper and broader on this to learn more and more. And so I, I started eventually um, strategic human resources management. That was my 
my masters and and then i really went down that rabbit hole of um management and leadership and culture i joined hey group which back then was a very very famous um hr consultancy with partners like dan goldman the father of emotional intelligence and other incredible people like mcclelland the psychologist was was one of the people who shaped that company it was one of, you know, one of those companies when you have a passion for something that you're like, I would work for them for free. Can I please work for you so that I can learn mm. from you? That was how I started working for um, Hey Group, which is now Con Ferry, by the way. It was um, acquired. And that's how my career in consulting started. So, you know, long story short, the reason really was I wanted to fix something that was very disappointing at a personal level and also in terms of the responsibility I felt towards our employees. Um, and so I left the company. I left the um, ice cream manufacturing company and I became a consultant. And that was the majority of my career up until a point where it felt, do you know what? I don't know if I want to be managing teams of consultants and rarely get to do the actual work. Because this is what you end up doing when you are in a company like PricewaterhouseCoopers, you know, when, when you are head of um, consulting, people consulting, you end up um, selling projects and then disappearing and selling more projects so that your team has work. And that's a business model that... Um, works perfectly for these companies. Um, but at an individual level, it's, um, you know, it's fulfilling because you get to coach your team and so on and so forth. But I realized that I didn't get enough of the hit that you get from doing the work that really fulfills you. And so I decided to step out and I decided to create my own business, um, delightfully small by design, uh, where, you know, and set up in a way that still allows me to do the deep work of supporting a client to uh, create an environment where people can do their best work. And that was a, the biggest gift, I, I guess, that I have ever given myself, um, really that gift of, of being able to refocus on what's important. Um, and yeah, and the podcast and other things that that I've been doing, the book that I've written, and so on and so forth, is part of that thinking of you know I want to go deeper. I want to go back to the why. So why have I started this? And the sort of work that lights you up and that makes you go, I really can't wait uh, to wake up tomorrow and start all over again. That's such an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. Um, I will. Uh... I'm a big lover of ice cream, so that brought a <laughs> smile break straight to my face. <laughs> yeah, ice cream. And isn't it, isn't it, isn't it funny that um, when you're in the trenches and you're learning and 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 the the scrounging for information on how to improve? I think that from a learning point of view, um, it's oh, it's it's unbelievable, and not something that I believe enough leaders do themselves the simple fact that you reach for, for some books and and try to educate yourself on how to make a better business or how to create mm -hmm. uh, a, a better culture for your business I mean that's 
that's in itself, it's, it's from a self-awareness point of view, that, that's an amazing thing. And it's something that I think really got me moving out into the world of consulting as well was mm-hmm. the, the simple fact that I'm so passionate about improving and, and being stagnated in a position where I, I couldn't prove, uh, improve was one that um, was one that kind of held me back. So the idea of managing my own business and um, continually improving and putting time and effort into my growth and development whilst trying to give back and add value to the world was something that was really appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I want to touch on a few things that you said through there, and 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 you one of the things that you mentioned was how do you create a culture where people want to come to work every single day? And I think that's something that you know we work with a lot of businesses as like we are specialists in culture as well. I mean, this is part of the reason why I'm a big fan of yours. I followed your work for some quite some time. What are what is some of the things that that businesses can work out for the leaders that are listening like what are some of the things that they can implement almost as low-hanging fruit mm. to improve the culture of their business mm-hmm. where would you start well so you know always like like always with these questions um the only a realistic answer can be it depends, right? <laughs> so I'm sorry to disappoint, yeah, but unfortunately, there's no, no I, recipe that would be uh, would work for everyone because it really depends which stage your business is at and where you are on your culture journey and stuff like that. But um, I'll, I'll, it's the same answer we give. All yeah, the time. <laughs> I know people people know <laughs> that the answer is going to be. By the way, it depends, but but still, we ask this question. Mm. Um, I think in search of clarity, such a deep human need to to have a little bit more clarity mm. and like, no, yes. But if there's only one thing that is the most important thing, like what, what is this thing? And I actually had a conversation with a potential client and we talked about, you know, I had really interesting insight into their business because I'm also one of their clients. And so I was sharing some feedback and then he was like, so if there was just one thing that we can do to, to improve our culture, what is it? Um, so I hear this a lot. And so let, let me give you, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to say maybe two or three things. So I think. Yeah, I actually had, I actually, the question I wrote down is what are the three things, oh, but I go. asked for the one. So <laughs> uh, let's go, let's go with the three. Let's go with Perfect. the three. Um, so, I mean, you know, it depends obviously if you have already done this work or not, but generally, you know, the first milestone I would say is, do you even know? What is the culture that you want to create? And do you even know what kind of culture is going to be the culture that um, helps your people to do the best work of their careers? And also, what is the kind of culture that is going to help you execute on your strategy? Because culture is... um, not just, you know, something for the culture's sake or to make people happy. It is supposed to help you to be successful as a business. And ideally, it, it's it's going to do that by um, making people feel energized, fulfilled, happy at work, and so on and so forth. So some organizations have done a little bit of work around that, and they have like a culture manifesto with core values and sometimes other elements like purpose or mission. So this is really important. This is an important foundation. And often when I talk with founders, leaders, or teams in these organizations, I say, how how aligned is this, this thing that you have created with your real business and with the business needs and also with a persona of your 
ideal um, employee. Because um, when you um, look at what you have on paper and what your business needs and what your people need, sometimes these two things don't necessarily connect. Um, or your values and other elements of your culture manifesto, so the thing that you aspire to, um, are too generic. And for me, these things need to be an enabler, an enabler of great work and an enabler of um, strategy, and they also need to be a differentiator. So having a value like teamwork, let's say, right, I don't know. I mean, I see so many companies that have these things. And my question is, is it like, you know, a license to play basically? Because I really can't think of a company these days that doesn't need teamwork, right? Who doesn't? Of course, this this is just, just something that is absolutely fundamental. But an interesting question is, what makes you different? What is um, this unique authentic cultural DNA that has enabled you to be successful up until this point and what will help you to get from here to there. So like if you have growth plans, what are those things, the ways of working that will take you from here to there? So this is the first element that I would look at. Do we really even know what kind of culture we need and we want to have? Um, And, you know, there are many, many different ways. So can I, can I, can I jump in there? When you ask that question, do we even know what what is what does an ideal culture look like? And I know the answer again is is it depends. But if if a leader was to paint a picture, a visual picture on what is the ideal culture, mm-hmm. is it what are the some things they should be ticking off? Is it how the people are feeling? Is mm-hmm. the systems and processes in place that are working? It's what people say when they walk in every yeah. morning. Is it the type of office that we work in? Like what what should they be picturing when they ask the question, what type of culture do we want? Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with, with this model, so I'm really quickly going to throw it in for context. Um, so... Yeah. When we think of culture, imagine, you know, this thing like an iceberg, right? There is a small thing that you can see above the surface of water. And then there is a bunch Mm -hmm. of important stuff that is underneath um, the the waterline. So when leaders imagine what culture looks like, they usually only think about the tip of the iceberg. And the tip of the iceberg tends to be behaviors at work. And I'm not saying that this is wrong because this is exactly the only thing that you can actually see on the surface. You see how people behave and interact. And so one of the most important things is to identify what are behaviors um, that, that we know are going to help us be successful. And what I see happens in many organizations is they will have stuff on paper or some idea of what our values are, the values that, w- that we want to guide us, but it's not entirely clear um, how we want to interact, how we want to collaborate, how we want to behave, you know, and what, what does that look for each role in this organization? Um, how can we make it granular enough to, to make it tangible for people. And then, of course, you have the systemic aspect, and that is visible on the surface as well. So let's say if you want an innovative organization, of course, you know, your systems um, 
and processes and practices need to be the right container for innovation to emerge organically. And a quick example that that I might give um, is, you know, if you if your um, performance management system is this old school forced distribution where only 10% of people can get high performer, um, right? And then you have the middle part and then there is a small percentage of people that will get fired because they are not performing. And basically, if you have a team of 10 people, even if they are all stars, you still need to distribute them on this curve, high performer, someone in the middle, and then low performers. That. Yeah. What impact does it have? And does it really help you to be innovative? Well, the answer is probably not no. because it creates a very competitive environment where people are basically trying to, you know, uh, win brownie points for what they are doing to get the, the the highest evaluation. And so they don't collaborate. It doesn't feel safe to come up with dumb ideas. It doesn't feel safe to make mistakes. So this sort of system is not really helping you to cultivate a culture of innovation. And a lot of companies have legacy systems like this one that are in direct conflict with the culture that they would like to have ideally. So that's another part. You know, if you know what your desired culture looks like in terms of behaviors predominantly, and, you know, if you, if you want to think about this in a sort of easy graphic way, think like a camera almost, you know, and f- camera is filming people at work. And and the question is, what do you see people do? How do you see people behave? Or when this happens, what is an ideal um, reaction? So for example, when a customer makes a complaint, what would you like, how would you like your people to react to that? One way is you are not, this is, this is not true. This is not what happened. And I did have this experience actually with a company recently when I said, we have this problem. And they're like, this is impossible because we worked with this property for 10 years and we've never had this problem. I was like, okay. <laughs> so yeah, 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 this is, lying to yourself. this is not a sort of behavior that we want to see. So, so, you know, Think of it like almost walking with a camera that records um, both um, both audio and video and what would you like to see um, on, on the visible surface. And then really challenge your systems, practices, and processes um, against that lens of, is it supporting us um, in, in creating that sort of culture or is it hindering us? Is it stopping us from, from being able for these cultural qualities to, to come to life? So I'd say these are two important elements. And then finally, you know, one, one last thing that I would like to add, um, to what are the sort of low hanging fruits or easier ways of, of evolving your culture and creating a culture that, that helps your business and your people is, Think of culture evolution or change um, as a movement. It's, it definitely cannot be a mandate. And I work a lot with startups, scale-ups, so companies that are on this high-growth trajectory. And one of the habits that founders like us tend to carry into the next stage of growth is, like, it's, it's my vision, it's my baby, I need to be sort of leading the way when it comes to values, when it comes to behaviors, when it comes to some important principles. But it's true, obviously, but also 
people are not going to behave a certain way in your organization because you say so. So I think mm. it's really important to kind of recognize that, that truth of life, right? Even if you do those things. Uh, so Daniel, even if you would never say to your client, this is impossible because we've never had this case in our company, it still doesn't mean that your customer service person is going to embrace the right behavior, which might be mm. asking more questions and really being focused on generating a solution for your client. The only person that can help your customer service employee to embrace the right behaviors is the colleague that they interact most with. So this is what I mean by culture is a movement and not a mandate. So what you want to be able to do is to identify informal influencers within your organization. Who are the people who have the social capital? Who are the people who your um, employees go for advice to or uh, trust them um, or people who they respect because of their expertise? And these are going to be the people that you want to activate and energize around these specific behaviors because Whatever others see them do, they will probably start copying it. Um, Le uh, Leandro Herrero, one of the incredible people in this movement of viral change, he said, we are homo imitants, which means that, you know, we look around, we look at people around us, and we, we uh, adopt the norms that we see around us. So... Um, to me, it's really quite interesting to turn things on their heads, especially when you're a leader, especially when you're a founder, and asking yourself, how can I make it more into a movement, um, this whole culture scaling or shaping um, thing and initiative, whatever you want to call it, um, and make it into a movement rather than something that I try to, to be driving myself. Oh, absolutely love that. Um, so, so much to unpack um, I do like the idea of, of the movement. We often refer to, you know, cultural, the, the cultural revolution as an ecosystem. It sort of just keeps spinning yeah, and, and, and intermixing. And, yeah. and um, it's not something that um, you can fix one thing and then that all of a sudden you've got a better culture. It is, it's so much more than that. Well, um, but the I, idea of working. Yeah, sorry, can I, can oh, I? There you go. Sorry, yeah. let, let, let me just quickly jump in. I'm sorry for, for um, interrupting you there. No. I agree jump. that there is no one thing that you can fix and suddenly your culture is going to be great. But uh, one thing that I've noticed, and that was kind of a light bulb moment for me in my culture work, is that there are keystone changes that you can make um, that will um, sort of pave the way to other positive changes in your culture. And so there are certain things without which you will never have a healthy culture. And that's, um, that's something important probably to keep in mind in, you know, I've, I've, yeah. What are the, what are those, what are those things? So, so I've done a lot of research so that others don't have to, because there's so much confusion <laughs> around this, right? So I'm pretty happy with what I have landed on because um, I've tested it with a lot of organizations and also cross-referenced with decades and decades and decades of academic research. So I feel like there are three pillars to thriving cultures without which it's impossible really to create a healthy environment. So the first one is fun. Mm -hmm. 
And when I talk about fun, it's not, it's not, um, table tennis, um, it's not beanbags, obviously, or, you know, keg parties or whatever. Um, I talk about the fulfillment that people can get from work itself. So like, is it, you know, do you experience friction um, most of the time or do you experience flow at least some of the time? And the less friction you have in your work, in other words, the easier and the more fun it is to be doing your job, the healthier the culture is going to be. So for me, a huge part of creating a healthy culture is focusing on what creates unnecessary friction for people and removing that. So fun is one of the first elements. And of course, you know, humor is an important element of fun as well and levity. So there are sub-elements to that. Um, but, but the, mm. you know, the, the umbrella term that I use is fun. Then there is meaning. Human beings have this intrinsic need to feel like they are part of something larger than themselves and making um, an important contribution to something that is meaningful to them. And often people just miss this line of sight and they don't understand how their work is contributing to something meaningful. Or perhaps it, it, it's not in some cases. And so I think for organizations, it's really important to reflect and, and ask themselves, why are we here and how do we make this um, world a better place for everyone? And how can our team members connect to that and and see their own contributions to, to this thing. And third element is belonging. So it's really about who do I get to be at work? And great companies and great cultures cultivate an environment where it's okay to be you when you get into the inner circle. So like we don't accept jerks into the inner circle. So it's not like you can be yeah. yourself and be a jerk in the inner circle. So of course, yes, there are certain conditions of what it means to be a part of this team. But when you get into the inner circle of an organization, you can be you and you get this sense that you can contribute, that you can challenge the status quo, um, that you are absolutely allowed to think differently. And um, yet, in spite of all that, you are a really integral part of the team and you know that this is your this is your tribe and these are your people and you can rely on them and they have your back so um these three elements i feel are super important you know so it's not like a recipe it's not a silver bullet because of course there's so much to each of them but that's what my experience has has shown that without these three whatever you do um you know it's a little bit like three-legged stool um, if one leg is yeah. not is not strong enough, it, it will be wobbly. And I think for the listeners who, who are listening to our conversation, one question that you can ask yourself is which is our strongest leg? So like what is what is is it fun? Is it meaning? Is it belonging? Where you know that you are pretty good at? And which are the wobbly parts? And I would definitely make sure that we strengthen the strong part, but also address the parts that are wobbly because otherwise, you know, you'll never be able to create that environment that we talked about, one where people can do their best work. And I'm so sorry about oh, interrupting never, uh, you earlier. No, 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 don't, don't ever be sorry for cutting me off. Uh, you've got much better things to say than me. The, the fun, so fun, meaning and belonging, um, amazing uh 
three pillars that you've just referred to. I want to pick on the fun one and <laughs> the fun police over here picking on the fun. Uh, if if you um, if you talk about removing friction as part of the fun element and what you know if the, what what, are, what is the the friction that we need to remove mm. in order for people to enjoy the work that they're doing these days the le- yeah i just i just want to ask the question leaders in their own right are not equipped these days to do that yes. they're not equipped to remove the friction in their own lives, let alone the expectation that they're going to be able to do it for others. Yeah. And and not to mention, uh, if you talk about leadership from the top, whether it be C-suite or whatnot, mm. there is expectations that you're delivering outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. So to create fun and remove friction whilst not delivering on outcomes can be, you know, a cocktail that no one knows how to create. Is, mm. is there advice that you can provide for, for the leaders who are struggling to remove those obstacles and remove the friction yes. for the people in their team? Yes. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't know if this advice is going to be um, relevant to everyone, but but um, there is a principle, I guess, maybe not advice that, that I would share with leaders. And the principle is, it's not about you. So... Try, try to remember yes. that, right? I say that to my kids every <laughs> single day. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, that means a lot of things. One of the things that it can mean is that actually you might not be the person who needs to remove friction or all of the friction all of the time. I think that there are certain frictions in companies and in organizations that only senior leaders can remove because simply of the decision-making power. And I'm speaking particularly about traditional hierarchical organizations because obviously there are organizations there that are self-managed and holacracy, using holacracy and all that stuff. But in traditional organizations, yes, you, you might be the person who has the decision power that others don't have. Um, but in my experience, the only way to know how to remove friction that teams are experiencing in their daily um, life is to, to ask them and, and give them a process that they can use internally within the team to keep asking this question. Like, what is uh, preventing us from being as, um, as effective as we can be? And you've mentioned this word outcomes, and I think this is a really important word to be using, but also really important focus to have in mind. I think what leaders often do is they um, talk about goals, not outcomes. So they, they set KPIs, they set goals, and they tell people that these things need to be achieved and hold on quite tightly and rigidly to those things. And so for me, one, one of the strategies to remove friction is to focus more on the outcomes and let the teams decide how to get there. So loosen the grip a little bit, you know, and trust your people. Be good at hiring. Um, so hire the right people, the people that you can trust, that have the capabilities and the mindset and the attitudes to do the right thing. Uh, train them. So Jim Collins' uh, number one rule, yeah. isn't it? Get, get the right people on, on the, the bus. bus. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it's 
we talk about it all the time. And yet I can see this in my own business. I've made hiring mistakes and probably I, I, I will keep <laughs> making, right? It, it happens. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, you get better with time. And I think we can do a lot of things to really improve this process, to be sure that the people that we bring on board are better and better. And it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, of course, because to get great talent, you have to have great culture. People have higher expectations these days from what their work experience is going to be like. And so if you have bad reputation in the market when it comes to your culture, it is going to be challenging to have the right people on the bus. Um, so, so yeah, so it is important to be working on culture. It is important to um, show this commitment, not by talking about it, by taking action, but back to your friction question and outcomes question. So, yes, yeah, so I would say, you know, trust your people. They will know what stops them from being able to bring the outcomes that you have set out, but, you know, not necessarily the goals that, that, that you've set, because we live in really times of exponential change. So whatever was true last month in your business, I'm sure, Daniel, is probably not true this month. Because things have changed, <laughs> right? And so we, we all want Absolutely. agile teams, but how can they be agile if they are still working towards the goals that we've set, you know, in 2021? So, mm. so um, for me, it's more about figuring out what is going to be the way we approach generating the outcomes that we want to have um, and give people the freedom to fig figure out the best way to get there. A very tangible example, just to bring it to life, a part of our business is a community, a community for culture leaders. And so, of course, you know, I could set um, a goal for our team in terms of growth and say, hey, guys, we want 100 members this year, extra 100 members this year. Um, but is this really the right goal? Or perhaps I should be talking about purposeful growth and member success and experience and what that looks like. And then let my team decide how they are going to accomplish that. Because maybe it's not 100, maybe it's 1000 or on the contrary, maybe it's just 50 members, but in a completely different model. And that might be, you know, with higher fees, it might still be very profitable for our business, but at the same time, generate more uh, member success and more, um, engagement on the platform. So to be able to do that, I need to admit to myself that I don't have all the answers and, mm. and just give that vision of success. What's what our strategy is, which in our case is purposeful growth, member success and member engagement. And let my team figure out what would be the best way to accomplish that. We have a conversation and then we run with it we experiment, we get feedback from reality and course correct as needed. Yeah, I find um, I always come back to the, the, I mean, it's a famous Steve Jobs quote where don't hire great people and tell them what to do, right? Hire great people and get them to tell you what to do. I think as a leader, it's mm -hmm. fundamental to the success of, of, of the business and I think your own sanity, right? Yeah. I think if, you, if, you, if you're going to be controlling in every single thing in micromanagement uh for your people that that's only going to eat away at your own it's gonna it's it's taking on more than you can you know biting off more than you can chew and it, there's an element for me that um 
I'm almost too lazy to, to take on everyone else's worries and needs. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one thing that we definitely do in our business is uh, is the empowerment of of the roles. We ex- we've hired you, and it's our expectation that you're going to take this and you're going to own it, and you're going to mm-hmm. and you're going to level it up, and you know, and that. Yeah. And and so one thing that I was going to ask you, in amongst all that. Is that one problem that we do see companies face time and time again, and you would see this on a daily basis, is the is the technical jerk or the brilliant jerk mm-hmm. or it's that person who is so great at their job but c- creating many issues culturally with, within the team, um, you know, and and the, and the, the behaviour gets accepted purely because they're delivering those outcomes right and and so what what's your advice to leaders in that situation where they've come up or they have someone who is that brilliant jerk in their team and how would you manage that situation so i'm probably not going to surprise you with my answer i um i fully embrace you know what um what someone has said, and it has been attributed to many different people, including Ed Shine, that your culture is becomes what you are willing to tolerate. So if you want everyone to behave like this jerk, then just tolerate this behavior. If you don't want your whole organization to become this, then I think, you know, step number one, um, address it with this person and be super clear that the way they behave, the way they collaborate with others. So the how of the work, not the what of the work, but the how of the work that they are doing is absolutely misaligned and not acceptable on this team. And talk to them about, um, you know, how they could embrace slightly different behaviors and be equally successful. So I'm all for giving people chances and coaching and making sure that um, we shed light on some of their blind spots. In my experience with brilliant jerks, um, they often, you know, they have bad habits that they have carried throughout their career and they have never been confronted about these bad habits. So for me, part of being kind as an organization and as a leader is really giving them that feedback that probably they've never had because people relied on their expertise so much that they never dared to talk to them about stuff. And in my experience, a large chunk of this population that we label a brilliant jerk, they're actually willing to change. They are willing to Mm be successful. It's just that they don't know how, you know? So, so, so definitely. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, right. You don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And when everyone is telling you, you are amazing, this is brilliant. And oh my God, you are a star. And that's the only (laughs) feedback that you have ever received throughout your lifetime. I mean, it's only natural that you would have this blind spot. So yeah. So shed light Mm -hmm. on the blind spot, help them change, you know. I really love um, Robert uh, Kogan's uh, methodology uh, around resistance to change because these people often behave in a way they do because they have what he calls uh, conflicting commitments. So they are committed to delivering 
outstanding results. And because of that, they behave a certain way. So in their mind, it's like this algorithm. If I behave this way, I am going to get outstanding results. If I start behaving differently, if I become a softy or whatever, I will basically um, make some trade-offs when it comes to outstanding results, and I'm not prepared to do that. Mm. So it's a kind of an algorithm that we need to help these people rewrite for themselves and have experiences where they see that this is a false assumption. And it doesn't necessarily have to be true. So you can still be nice to people and get, get um, fabulous numbers or amazing, write amazing code or whatever it is that, that, that you are doing. So that would be for me step number one. So when I say don't tolerate, I don't say sack day one. <laughs> but yeah. Right. But if you have this conversation and you really give them uh, an opportunity to reflect and to grow and to develop and they keep doing what they were doing, uh, so being a jerk, then you, you don't really have a lot of options. But say, you know what, I don't think that we can continue working together. Sorry about that. But we've tried and it, it's not working out and we have to say goodbye. And it's hard, but sometimes you have to do it. Absolutely. I, look, there's a there's a saying here that we use in Australia, and it's the standard that you walk past is the standard that you accept. And I love um, it. And and yeah, it's it's definitely one that that seems true. I, I want to quickly jump into culture and the return on investment from mm -hmm. um, putting time and effort into mm -hmm. culture. I mean, this is something that I know you've spent a bit of time on and researched in. It's it's something that's really difficult for business leaders to take the time to learn and understand. Is if I'm going to invest in my culture, what does it? What does the invest? Mm -hmm. like, what does that investment look like? What returns am I going to see? Is there um, is there something that you work to when you work with leaders, or something that sticks out to you that um, is the first point of the return? Mm -hmm. So. You know, strictly, strictly academically speaking, with very rigorous thinking around how you can calculate return on investment on culture, it is very difficult because there are so many moving parts. So the thing is, you know, how do you isolate um, the impact of a specific action or investment that you have taken because there are other elements as well, right? The, the, the markets are shifting. You are not the same company as you were a couple of years ago. Um, so it's challenging and a lot of, um, incredibly, um, successful and effective, um, researchers have made efforts and did come up with some, interesting numbers in spite of that. And what that tells me is that it is absolutely beyond any doubt that investing in your culture, not just intuitively, but also in a way that is measurable, it absolutely delivers um, more powerful results. So there's research that indicates that companies that invest in their culture um, have 10 times higher engagement than their counterparts. And we all know that engaged employees um, produce better results. But to um, confirm that, um, other research shows that companies that invest in their culture have up to sometimes hold on to your seed 1,000% <laughs> higher profitability. 
1000%. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so it's like, if an investor is listening to this, this is probably a, the best investment that you can make in the company that you have invested to make sure that they do something mm. about their culture. Because when it comes to sustainable growth, that's probably the number one thing to invest in. Now, what we see in the current landscape is that there is still a lot of short-term thinking and you won't see that 1,000% increase in profitability in one year. So that's sometimes, <laughs> right? So you see it over time. Oh, the, oh, oh it's, and uh, can you change my culture in six months, please? Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we hear this every single day. Yeah. So so you have to be in it, you know, uh, for the long haul. Um, I have never seen an organization, maybe you have, um, Daniel, and so let, let's have a chat, chat on this. I'm actually really curious because it might be just me, but I've never seen an organization that was focused on short-term financial results, having a great and healthy culture. Were they effective? Did, were they profitable? Yes. Did they have a toxic culture? Yes. <laughs> so I think unless there is this outlook um, around, you know, I want this business to be around in 10 years from now and I care about what shape this business is going to be in 10 years from now, companies simply don't invest in culture. That's that's what I see happen. How about you? I have never. No, it, it, you're right. If If, if bottom line... Uh, and returns to shareholders is the only thing that the directors or the 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 C-suite are looking to do. Then generally, you see mm-hmm. that toxic culture trickle down. It becomes a competitive environment where everyone's out for their own and just trying to get results on the board. And yeah, and um, yeah, it 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 breeds uh, it breeds a, a very toxic environment. I think one. Um, one thing for me, though, if you if you talk about those ten times returns and the one thousand percent, right? There's there's a lot of people who who believe they know how to improve culture, mm-hmm. right? So so you can you know, and so I mean, you would have seen it time and time again that there are businesses out there and organisations and leaders out there who are reluctant to get help with the improvement to improve their culture because they have received poor advice previously mm-hmm. and they didn't see those returns. Yeah. So what what I mean, how do we work with companies who A don't know really how to improve the culture and, and nor do they have the capability or capacity to do so, but yet have been burnt mm-hmm. <laughs> when they have uh, when they have tried it with other consulting firms. And we know some mm-hmm. of the big big consulting firms that they go in and have their own methodologies and for some leaders it works yeah. right they take it on and they improve and and then but for for others who have this expectation that the consulting company is going to do it all mm-hmm. um, it might not work yeah so what's your suggestion to those in the, in that in that area so I'm going to answer your question um, from a perspective the perspective of of our listeners. And kind of, you know, get into your shoes. So I'm imagining, you know, if you are running a business and have been burned by consulting companies, how, you know, what should you be expecting from someone that potentially is more credible and more reliable in supporting you to do this work? So I would say the first thing to first is um, trust that there are 
people who know what they're doing and look for them mm. because there are, there absolutely are people who know what they're doing and uh, reach out to them and have a conversation and see whether they are willing to listen to you. Um, for me, it's the most important thing. You know, when you start a partnership with a third party that is going to help you around your culture, they are not there to sell you something. They are there to understand what is important for your business, what has been your cultural journey, what has worked, what hasn't worked. And if the person that you are speaking to is not willing to listen, that's the first red flag, that this is not the right person to be talking to. And from the point of the consultant, again, we need to understand, right, what um, what has happened, what is the legacy there, what are the experiences that people have had, and why the transformation or change that they were trying to achieve failed so uh, that's that's super important and then for me you know one of the um elements of the right collaboration there is to um and and how you can understand that this might be the right partner for you is to um find an organization a company a, a consulting company or an individual who understands that um you will never be able to rely on them forever so their philosophy is really to build internal capability to be independent of a third party eventually because that's the only way you can achieve success with culture culture is one of those things that you know there's, there's never there there, so you never arrive. It's not like, yay, we have a yeah. fantastic culture. We're done now. The it's, project is finished. That's right. <laughs> and let's celebrate. It's constant work. It's constant work. And the most credible people to do this work and capable people to do this work, they need to be within your organization. So um, in Culture Brained, what we do is we recruit a culture squad from within the client organization. And the way we do it is we use organizational network analysis where we find the informal influencers, these people that I mentioned before with social capital, who um, have the, you know, the informal power to move things because people respect them, people trust them, people have strong relationships with them. And we work with them to uh, drive culture change from within rather than saying we are superheroes and we will fix your culture and you will be done forever because it, this simply doesn't work. So Culture Brains is the community that you were talking about before, isn't it? It's the, yeah. the organ. Yeah, Culture Brains um, is the community, and it's also it's also our business. So we've um, uh, recently um, sort of merged um, a couple of businesses into one under the umbrella of Culture Brains. So we have Culture Brains, the consultancy, and Culture Brains, the community. Brilliant. I want to ask the question, and this is this is from one cultural uh, one culture consulting firm to another cultural business cultural consulting business mm -hmm. do you get frustrated with the simple fact that you only ever get asked to do work from great companies i mean because i and, and i and i'll say that in the sense that those leaders who are willing to work on their culture are so much forward, more forward thinking than those mm -hmm. with toxic cultures. Those with toxic cultures want the control. They want things to keep going the way yeah. that they're going because 
they they they're earning their good they you know they're earning some their good pay packages and and uh, the moment they start trying to improve yeah. the culture then all of a sudden things are going to unravel for them mm-hmm. so is that something that you face yes you, and look for me it's it works quite well because we're always yeah. working with great people yeah. but it, it when you when you join and when you start a business you start with the idea that you really want to help those mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. who are in those toxic cultures yeah. but yet you never get to you do I'm just you do to hear your thoughts on that. I, I think you do but um but you don't see it um you know mm. uh from from the vantage point yeah. of just sitting in your business helping these great companies so to your question do i do i face a, a similar situation absolutely i think it speaks mm. volumes uh if a company reaches out to a culture consulting company it already is a huge statement of we are ready to yeah. invest in our culture. And usually these are the companies who already walk the talk to a great extent. So 100%, 100%. When I was working for larger consultancies, it was different because there were a lot of companies that, even for compliance reasons in Europe, um, especially in the financial sector, it's one of the requirements now to be able to show that you've done something to improve your culture, especially around risk culture. And so it's a tick box exercise and huge consultancies get hired with these crappy companies uh, very often and get projects of millions of dollars sometimes, um, but not much changes. So back to your question. Yes, I face the same. I don't feel frustrated because I look at it slightly differently recently. So this is this has been one of my light bulb moments as well. And it came from network science and understanding how networks work. So when I think about our mission, and it's both the mission of our community, but also the mission of our business, the Culture Brain Consultancy, we want to make work synonymous with fun, meaning, and belonging. And Obviously, this is something that we cannot do alone. So it requires a movement. It requires a large number of companies um, doing things to create that environment. And what I learned from network science is that when you want to change something, you don't go to the center of the existing network. So let's say these toxic companies that believe that you know, this is the only way for them to make money or whatever, um, because they are not very responsive to uh, new ideas. What you need to do is to create a new network. So you build it out instead of building it into the old system. And so basically, I feel that you and I, Daniel, and other companies like our companies, the work that we're doing is building out this new network of progressive businesses who believe in thriving, building thriving cultures and making it eventually with time to be the norm. So we are creating a new norm. And then people in these toxic organizations, they will say, do you know what? You suck. And I'm going to work for this company because it has a better culture. And so at some point, I believe that there's going to be the stepping point where no one will want to work for a toxic environment and they will be forced to change. But they will be not Mm. be the first to change. They will be the last to change. And so I think Mm. we are doing great work for these toxic environments as well, just indirectly. Now that you put it like that, we're creating a nice little web where... uh, you know, it's almost going to become the expected. Yeah. 
like you said, this is what I expect when I rock up into work every single day. It's a leader mm-hmm. that actually cares about what we're trying to do and it cares about the, he, he or she cares about the strategy um, or they care about where where we're all going as, as a human race or a community or whatever it m- might look like. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm conscious of, of time. We've, we've ticked over the hour mark, but I want to ask one last question before we jump into some quick fire questions. Um, the future of work, there's this suggestion that over the next 20 years, there's going to be more, well, there's going to be more change over the next 20 years than what we've seen in the past 300 mm-hmm. years. How does a business and a leader plan for this? continual and constant change without actually knowing what it looks like i know well i mean from the neuroscience point of view we need to be very mindful of the fact that um our brains are not wired to work well in an environment of ambiguity so (laughs) human nature uh resists this this thing that rapid change with passion And so I love your question and asking how can leaders create an environment where, um, you know, people can deal with with this amount of change because this is actually probably going to be one of the biggest and most in-demand capabilities of leaders going forward, creating an environment where people can feel safe enough to deal with external ambiguity and rapid change. Um, and it bears repeating because I think for a lot of people, they are, they, they, they see this as conflicting ideas, safe environment, but you know, to deal with external ambiguity. Yes, because human beings to be able to deal with whatever threat, we need to know that there is a safe base. And so I think that within teams, within organizations, what's really important is to create conditions where it's okay not to know, it's okay to be vulnerable, it's okay and safe to disagree, it's okay and safe to learn new stuff where you are clumsy and lost and confused. And it's okay to admit, hey, I suck at this and I really don't know how to get better, you know? Um, And unless you have that safe environment within the organization, of course you will not be able to adapt to the changing environment. Um, Because, you know, if people need to seem very capable and very professional and very buttoned up on a daily basis, they will not be willing to learn and be vulnerable. So I think one of the concepts that has really... Uh, come to the surface recently is this concept of psychological safety with Amy Edmondson and Mm. Timothy Clark spearheading this movement. Um, And I think it's one of the most important areas for leaders to to dive deep into. How do I create psychological safety on my team so that we can um, move with the changes um, at a speed um, with which they are happening? I love it. I am... I wrote, I wrote what you just said down then, which is how do we create an environment where people feel safe in a world with constant change? That might be my new vision statement for the business. <laughs> it's, um, it, it's, uh, it, it's definitely one that, like you said, with the constant change and it's not just digital change, right? Mm-hmm. It's organisational change. Yeah. It's workforce social. change. It's environmental change, social mm-hmm. change, exactly. It's, yeah, it's all the above that goes mm-hmm. into that and, 
and um, not to mention dealing with with a pandemic and across this, we right. had to get, we had to have a podcast and mention pandemic right we earlier. Have. So, <laughs> well, um, but it's it's funny, you know, because we went for more than an hour without mentioning it, which I think in itself it's telling. Maybe we're getting over it oh, finally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, absolutely. I think or or we're a little bit more philosophical than the, than the media, but it, that that's fine. Um, <laughs> what I I want to ask one last question before. Um, before we go into the quick fire question, so your your book, I'm really interested in in, in your book. Let's let's give that a little bit of a plug now. Mm. What is your book about, and and tell us um, tell us yeah how how it all came to be. So if you are um, a person in HR, and if you are responsible for cultivating a coaching culture, um, this is a book for you. So it's definitely not a book for everyone. It's quite an academic book in the sense that there's a lot, it's quite heavy. It's not an easy read, you know, um, on a weekend. Um, it's a book that really talks about the technical and deep scientific sort of aspects of how do you create an environment where coaching becomes second nature to people. And so we talk a lot about creating internal pools of coaches and managers as a coach and what does a coaching culture even look like and stuff like that. And I co-authored it with two giants in the space, um, both Davids, David Clatterbach and David Meganson. Um, and yeah, it's out there for, for anyone who's really interested in this specific topic. So where, where can they, where can they find it? Anywhere What's really. So Amazon, I think would be probably the best place to go to. And the title yeah. of the book is building and sustaining a coaching culture. Excellent. Well, definitely, we'll put that in the show notes for everyone to uh, to get onto it as well. So, quick fire questions. These might not necessarily always be quick fire, but we are very big readers here on the Creating Synergy podcast. And you mentioned that you were also reading fifty odd books a year. Um, what is what are you reading right now? So, I'm reading a book called Free Time by Jenny Blake. And I think the title might be slightly misleading because actually it's not just about free time and what we think about when it comes to free time, <clears throat> but it's about how you can create a business where you get to do the work you love, uh, more of the work that you love and less of the stuff that you hate doing. So it's a great book for founders and leaders of, of organizations that grow <clears throat> so I found Absolutely. myself in this space. And so I'm reading this book right now and, and I'm finding it really, really useful. Brilliant. Do you audiobook or do you read? I do audiobook a lot. I'm a big yeah. multitasker. Yeah. So every visit to the yeah. gym, every <laughs> walk, every drive, I'm always listening to I'm, something. You too? I'm the same. Mm. I, I, yeah, I, I'm probably the same. Maybe, you know, maybe not 50 books a year, but at least 30 to 40 books a year and definitely definitely audiobook is is the reason and how i get through it so quickly and um but what i will do i don't, I like I don't know if you do this yeah go ahead probably you, you were going to say what i, I was I, going to say yeah, yeah. I, you were yeah i i buy the book after the audiobook and then scribble down all my notes and everything that's in there so people hate me because half those books that are standing sitting right behind me right now mm -hmm. scribble all through, <laughs> so. and that's i do that because i don't want people to borrow them ah that's smart <laughs> i don't i'm a kindle more of a kindle girl and 
One uh, of the reasons is that we are moving around so much and I already have endless boxes of books, so I don't want to add mm. to that. But but I, I will do exactly the same thing. So if I listen to a book and I find it really useful and something that I want to go back to, I'll download the Kindle version. And so I, I have always two versions, an audio and, yeah. and a Kindle version. Yeah. I need to, I've got the Kindle. I'm looking at it right now, mm-hmm. but I just don't use it as well as I do. I use a book. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something about just, I don't know, picking yeah. up a hard copy, the smell of the book. I love the I smell. Know. It's definitely, mm. yeah. Um, given Culture Labs podcast, what other podcasts do you listen to? Other than creating synergy, of course, what, you, what, what other ones do you listen to? So I love Work Life by Adam Grant. I love. Oh yeah, well, yeah. Know. Are you fans as well? Oh, I'm, I'm a I'm a massive fan yeah. of Adam Grant. Yeah. yeah, me too. I love Brave New Work with Aaron Dignan and Rodney Evans. So in our space, mm-hmm. um, I think that these would be my my top two. Uh, but I also listen to many other podcasts. So I love Ten um, Percent Happier. Uh, with Dan Harris, which is mostly about being present and meditation and happiness, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, I love stories, like a huge, uh, I'm completely addicted to stories. So one of the podcasts that I listen to is um, The Moth. And I also, oh, yeah. do, you, do you know it? No, I have heard of it. Mm-hmm. I've heard some really great things, but I, I, I've never invested time. Yeah, it's it's really cool, you know, if if you're sort of relaxing or trying to fall asleep or whatever. So that's my go-to um, if I can't sleep. <laughs> and then I'd love the, the storytelling of This American Life, for example, you know. So I, I love this format, uh, which is really sort of a journalistic approach, almost like a radio show uh, kind of thing. Absolutely wonderful. I love it. Now, what is one lesson that is taking you the longest to learn? I think it's that... I cannot control everything, but I can co-create it. I really struggle to find the right balance there between control and like being laid back. Um, none felt entirely like the right place to be sitting in. And then I, I, I just came up with this idea for myself of co-creating with the universe, you know, so like being flexible enough to let life happen to me and then working and dancing with what's happening and allowing serendipity to play a role in how I build my business and how I live my life. So that I think that that was really hard to learn. And I'm in no way claiming that I've mastered this skill. I'm still learning it. Um, And yeah, it's, 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 but I love your way of explaining of dancing with the co-creation mm-hmm. of it and the way the, you know, I mean, that just paints a picture in itself. I think it's one thing that I, when I look up to people, I, I some people that I look up to have this ability to just let the water roll off, you know, mm-hmm. like, and just let it, it, and, oh, it's, it's amazing. I sit there with, you know, this glint in my eyes when I see people do it because I struggle with it. I'm, I'm very much the same as you. The, the what, do, what, what do you find most ang- challenging around that i think it's the um i think if i was to put down as one of my skill sets is the ability to be able to read three or four 
three or four uh, positions, you know, you know, read the play almost. Mm-hmm. I can see mm-hmm. what's going to happen right. down the track. And, and so I position and prepare mm-hmm. myself for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when others don't see it, then that's when I start getting anxious mm-hmm. and I start feeling like I need to control this situation. And, you know, maybe I should definitely read your book and how to be uh, from the coaching element point of view and, and how do mm-hmm. I let other people make mistakes. I do do that, but I think it's, it's one thing that I grapple, especially internally, yeah. um, is the ability to, to let go. Yeah. At a leadership level, by the way, I'm going to plug a book of my friend Michael Bangistania um, because his, his books are great for leaders who want to become a little bit more of a coaching leader in a very practical way. So anything by Michael Bangistania um, is, is, is a great read. And he has these seven questions that leaders can ask. So it's almost like literally, you know, memorizing the questions and then um, just using them in your conversations. Even that approach, which obviously is very mechanistic, is already helps a lot in kind of yeah giving up the control and engaging a little bit more with um drawing others in and and getting their ideas on board brilliant if you could invite three people for dinner who would they be so i don't know why this is really bizarre but since i was a kid i was obsessed with africa and uh, a particular period particularly in kenya and women who lived there. So one of them is Karen Blixen, the author of Out of Africa. And then there is Beryl Markham, who lived exactly during the same period in Kenya as Karen Blixen did. So basically they moved there around, I, I suppose, 19, 14, um, something like that. Um, and this was such a, you know, the, 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 the nature and so on. So I, and they were, incredibly bold, independent, adventurous women. So Beryl Markham was a woman pilot and she was a commercial pilot, you know, in Africa back then. Can you imagine? And she flew through across Atlantic alone. Um, so amazing. absolutely amazing back then. So I would definitely love for the two of them to be there. And then I think I would invite Margaret Mead also. So another woman, not very diverse from that point of view, um, a a famous anthropologist. I think it would be a very interesting conversation. Absolutely. Um, What's some of the best advice that you've ever received? So I think it was best and very powerful and transformational when someone, and you know, the moment has to be right for us to be able to listen to something like that. I agree. I agree that I actually I agree the same with reading a book. Correct. Yeah. The moment absolutely. has to be right. Yes. 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 Absolutely. So the advice was um, more of a statement, really. Well, and a little bit of an advice, which was along the lines of, "You are not perfect, but you are enough. So live from that space. You are not perfect, <laughs> but you are enough." And that was, wow, that really changed my world. Because I always had this, you know, I think need to be perfect. And at the same time, the imposter syndrome (laughs) kicking in all the time. It can be completely paralyzing. Um, So I try to remind myself to live from that space. It's okay not to be perfect. I'm not perfect, but I am enough. And I'm going to run with it, you know. Can I ask a question on that? I'm going to digress. Sorry from this. Yeah, sure. But when you say... When you when you say 
I am enough. And this is something I struggle with as well. Does When you say I am enough, does that mean that I am no longer continuing to strive to get better? No. Yeah, thank you for this question because I think for, for many people that might sound a little bit like that. But what that mm-hmm. is is it's, it's saying I am enough to try, right? I am enough mm-hmm. to step up. And to lead this group of people, for example, it's, it's something that we need to embrace to be able to step into the arena and do something that we are scared of because fear and this, you know, imposter syndrome and all this shit that is coming up. Can I say shit? Do you, well, now well, <laughs> yeah, you can peep it out. Yeah, no, doesn't, doesn't bother me. <laughs> all this shit that is coming up for us, what it does is it prevents us from doing important work. And I think, you know, the more important and impactful the work can be, the more afraid we feel. And so this not enoughness is basically keeping us chained to um, this position of almost like a victim kind of mentality or, or an observer mentality where you just watch what happens, you get frustrated by things, but you don't do anything about it. So this is what I mean by being enough. I'm enough to step up to a challenge. And um, obviously, I will need to learn and I will need to grapple with um, my weaknesses and so on and so forth. But I don't allow the lack of perfection to stop me from trying. Yeah. You know, someone said, I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert, and I love this phrase, that... um, this feeling of not enoughness is is basically fear wearing um, a fur coat. So like this fancy, you know, and Jimmy Choo <laughs> shoes kind of thing, a, fan, a fancy <laughs> version, basically sort of hiding really this animalistic fear that you are going to die. You know, you are going to die if you do this thing. And so you just hide. Mm. So I don't want to hide. That's why I, I, I tell myself I'm enough. You know, even coming on your podcast or doing anything in the public arena, it's one of those things, right? When you are asking yourself, who am I really to speak to thousands of people about this stuff? There are so many other people who are wiser, more capable, more fun, more entertaining, right? And if you allow this voice to drive your life, you're screwed, basically. Yeah, look, it's uh, imposter syndrome is real and uh, it's definitely one thing that I grapple with the simple fact that I have some amazing people on the show and, and you know and you, you talk the same as well when you you, know, you have some world-renowned guests on your show too and 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 you sit there and you go what why would anyone want to speak to me like what why am I so lucky um, but yeah I think it is it is definitely saying I'm enough is definitely something that um, will get you through it. And, and being comfortable with the ambiguity of it all is, mm-hmm. is, a, is, a, is a definite skill set. Um, I don't think that, I don't think that um, you and I suffer from any less anxiety from anyone else. It's just I think maybe we can push it to the side and, and get on with it, right? Yeah, I, I I guess so. That's really it, right? And sometimes you swear as you go. I mean, last weekend, a friend of us invited us um, to a hike um, um, up the uh, Parnithos Mountain in, uh, in Attiki, near Athens. And I didn't realize it's Greece, you know, so I didn't realize that 
there would actually be a lot of snow and we would be like walking up the mountain at some point um, uh, in deep, deep snow. And I'm not that fit. I'm not a hiker. So I was like swearing for, you know, two hours nonstop, like really bad <laughs> language. And my husband um, who was walking next to me. He said, I've never heard you, <laughs> you know, swear so much in, in a period of one hour when things got difficult, but you know, <laughs> then you're like, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. You know, I could have gone back when I saw the snow and said, I'm going down guys. I'm really not going to the peak. And I think this thing, I am enough. It helped me get there and kind of push through in a terrible way. You know, I probably spoiled everyone's experience because they had to wait for me and whatever. <laughs> so I didn't realize that, but, but it's still a choice, right? So you can still choose to do it and then do it again and again and again. And eventually, hopefully you build up the fitness level to, to make the experience um, pleasurable for the people who are with you as well. Oh, the, um, the choice uh, part we could talk about that we're going to have a whole <laughs> podcast on that but so um victor frankel's you know mm -hmm. stimulus and response yeah between stimulus and response is that choice and mm. so um yeah, yeah it's a space stuff. yeah um next question if you had access to a time machine where would you go so I already answered the question partially I think I would you go did. yeah I would go amazing. to 1920s in Kenya amazing if you had one superhero power, what would it be? I think um, I'd like to fly for the perspective. Um, so, you know, sometimes when I can get away from um, things and get up the mountain or on the sea or whatever, um, I really get that sense of a better perspective and that we really are a speck mm. um, and all mm. the troubles and problems that seem gigantic uh, when we are on earth are really not that important so i'd like to be able to fly just for the perspective's sake so like get up there and see things for what they really are definitely humbling experience being up there mm. now i'm uh i'm a big fan of really bad jokes so <laughs> have you got a mum or a dad joke for me <clears throat> So first of all, I'm terrible at telling jokes, which everyone now who's listening <laughs> and, to this podcast will realize. <laughs> but as well, I said, it's a and choice, that's right? The beauty, <laughs> that's the beauty of this question, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, between, it's supposed to be bad. Yeah, between the stimulus and uh, and the action, there is a space. I'm in this space right now, and I'm going to dive into it in spite of the fact that I know that I'm terrible. So a dad joke. What... What do we call uh, someone with no body and no nose? <laughs> I, I know the I know the answer to this, but I'm going to let you deliver the punchline. Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant! Nobody knows. Yeah. I love it. That's so good. What do you call a person with no nose and no eyes and no legs? Oh my gosh. Uh. I have no idea. Nobody knows. Oh, sorry, not not no eyes. No 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 eyes, no body and no legs. No eyes, no body and no legs. Eyes, no body. Still nobody knows. Still <laughs> oh, this is great. <laughs> Uh, brilliant. Love, Luke, love thank you so much. Thank you. Aga for your time today. You have been 
an absolute pleasure to speak to. Um, this is going to go down in the history books as one of the most epic conversations. So thank you. Thank um, you. You've been delightful. Thank you for all your knowledge. I appreciate it. And, and, and thank you for your, the work that you're doing in this space and, you know, especially with Culture Brains and the work that you're doing with organisations, but further to that, the podcasts and, you know, the content that you're creating, um, I have no doubt is absolutely changing lives. It's changing organisations for the better and improving leadership capabilities, improving um, leaders in, in helping reach their strategies and, and, and manage their cultures in a way that is beneficial for the people who work for them. So you, you're having an impact on the world and kudos for that. Thank you, Daniel. And likewise, you are doing amazing work and uh, I know that you are changing the world as well. So thank you for your work. And I think, you know, it's one of those moments when you feel like, oh, I've met one of the people of my tribe and it's such a wonderful thing to be sitting across someone on the other side of the world who is passionate about similar things and is doing similar work. And, and I believe that it really does take an army of kindness and, and change agents like you to make um, work better and suck less for people. So I'm grateful for you. <laughs> I'm definitely grateful for you, for your show, for the consulting work that you are doing. Um, we're on the same journey and it's fun to know that there are people like you out there doing similar work. Absolutely. We, it's funny that you say we found someone in our tribe. I, I'm known as a people collector, so unfortunately you're never letting me go. <laughs> I'm always going to be hanging around somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm stuck with you and I'm um, liking it. It's, it's great. <laughs> Sounds like a great plan. Likewise. Brilliant. Where can where can we find you? Well, I think the best place is, I wish I could say what Seth Godin says, but probably it's not true. Um, what he says is just type Seth into Google. Yeah, <laughs> so that, I, yeah, I wish yeah. I could say just type yeah, Aga good. into Google and you'll find me, but it might be a little <laughs> bit more complicated than that. So I'd suggest visit my website, which is agabayer.com, which is spelled A-G-A-B-A-J-E-R. Um, dot com and there you will have access to um, what I'm doing and the blogs that that uh, we're creating and the podcasts and the book and everything is there. A G A B A J E R dot com and um, and the Culture Labs podcast. You can get it on all the podcast outlets. It's definitely worth listening to. So thank you. Thank you so very much. much for your time again. I go. We'll uh, we'll catch you soon. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. I am going to ask though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate and review. And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care guys, all the best. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.